The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. This, Your Majesty, is Rupert, our young editor. How do you do, Rupert? How do you do? Sit down. And what's that you're reading? Karl Marx. Surely you're not a communist. Do I have to be a communist to read Karl Marx? Rupert. That's a valid answer. Well, if you're not a communist, what are you? Nothing. Nothing? It is like all forms of government. But somebody must rule. And I don't like the word rule. Well, if we don't like the word rule, let's call it leadership. Leadership in government is political power. And political power is an official form of antagonizing the people. What magazine did you say he edits? A commentary on current events. <laughs> Pardon me, Lester. But, uh, my dear young man, politics are necessary. Politics are rules imposed upon the people. In this country, rules are not imposed. They are the wish of all free citizens. Travel around a bit, then you'll see how free they are. Yes, but you didn't let me finish. They have every man in a straitjacket. And without a passport, he can't move a toe. But if you'll allow me to finish... In a free world, they violate the natural rights of every citizen. But you don't let me... Will you... They have become the weapons of political despots. Yes, but may and I... And if you don't think as they think... You're deprived of your passport. Will you allow me to... To leave a country is like breaking out of jail. Yes, And to enter a country is like going through the eye of a needle. But Am I free to travel? Of course you're free to travel. Only with a passport. Will you allow me to say something? Only some... with a passport. Do animals need passports? <laughs> Have you finished? It's in Congress that in this atomic age of speed... We are shut in and shut out by passports. If you'll shut up and let somebody else talk... And free speech, does that exist? No, you've got it all. And free enterprise. We were talking of passports. Today it's all monopoly. All right. Now will you... Can I go into the automobile business and compete with the auto trust? If I can get in a word... Not a chance. Can I go into the grocery business and compete with the chain stores? Will you shut up? Not a chance. Monopoly is the menace of free enterprise. As I look back 60 years ago... Where were you 60 years ago? He was a glint in his great-grandfather's eye. <laughs> Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, December 15th, 2022. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. So, do you have to be a communist to read Karl Marx? Of course not. In fact, I would venture to say that even most communists have never read Karl Marx, nor have the millions upon millions of people who have had their lives destroyed by the evil ideas and ideology of Marxism ever read Karl Marx, or those of Hitler in Mein Kampf. Of course, the catch-22 to this statement is that most people are communist, or socialist, or fascist. They're all the same thing, and they got that way precisely by being denied the truth about what those ideologies are all about. And they've also been denied the truth about the true nature of freedom and capitalism, which, by the way, is the greater epistemological crime. Though we'll be touching on everything from the economy to COVID to the vaccines to following the science, there's really a single common theme to our show today. 
one that over the course of the show you'll hear expressed in very different ways, and that is the manipulation of language as the primary means to deprive individuals of their fundamental rights to life, liberty, and property, and to the condition of individual freedom that arises whenever people are able to think rationally without fear of reprisal. Thinking rationally requires accurate and precise definitions, without which thinking cannot occur. Destroying our ability to think is a key ingredient to the advance of any form of collectivism. No doubt you've all heard that we're in the middle of an information war. But what is the nature and identity of such a quote-unquote war? If it's about information, and if it is a war, then it has to be a war that can only be understood in terms of falsehoods and deception on the one side, and the truth and honesty on the other. And information wars are fought with words and with concepts, which is why the real battleground in the info wars is the battleground of definitions. Define or be defined. There's no escaping the consequences of either option taken. The pen is mightier than the sword. We are all in the middle of Word War 3, and we'll be heading to the battlefront of that war right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform, and visit us at justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of our social media links, archived broadcasts, and the support button that makes it easier for you to support the show. Because, as always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. So, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Sound familiar? Many attribute that biblical quotation to the beginning of creation, where, as I have always held, that it's really about the beginning of conceptualization, the beginning of concepts, the word, and the ability to conceptualize is unique to human beings. But before we begin to get into concepts in and of themselves, let's not forget that all words and their definitions are symbols. They're symbolic or They're mental representations of the physical objects or the abstract concepts to which they refer. It is mankind's ability to conceptualize and abstract concepts that separates humanity from all of the other known species on the planet. But it is at one time both the incredible strength and power of humanity and its weakness. All human beings are born into this world without any development of concepts, whatever. A condition often described as tabula rasa, or a blank slate. Humans don't even have the instinctual ability to stand, walk, run, fly, or swim, you know, shortly after birth, like most members of the animal kingdom do. We got nothing. So we're very much like a computer, just sitting there with the mechanics, without an operating system or data at birth. And our very functioning ultimately depends upon knowledge and how to apply that knowledge to reality in a way that actually meets our needs. Any search for truth begins with accurate definitions, unchangeable definitions that relate to reality. In this regard, recall that because English is a living language, 
it can be easily corrupted, which is why Latin and other so-called dead languages have been used in the fields of medicine and science. That's because the root words derived from those languages can no longer be changed or redefined without rewriting history and destroying the very concepts themselves entirely, which I wouldn't put it past the left to attempt to do. So let's begin with this understanding. Those who seek power for the sake of power will always do whatever they can to destroy the ability of those they wish to control to understand anything about what's happening to them. That's why they're so paranoid about freedom of speech and any open discussions that they can't control. That's why they rely so much on propaganda and their own misinformation. And what is it they're also afraid of? Simply put, freedom and capitalism. Two words which, when objectively understood, hold the key to mankind's very survival and which are consistent with human nature. And to drive that particular point home in a very unique and original way, at least in a way we don't hear often expressed, coming up next you'll be hearing a fellow named Tanner Nide, who, like the person interviewing him, namely Laura Lynn Tyler Thompson, comes from a family of Christian pastors and missionaries, and who has a very Christian perspective on life and morality. But it's not on those grounds that he defends capitalism, freedom, property rights, and ultimately reason itself as you'll hear in this December 1st conversation that we've picked up right after Laura Lynn, who is in British Columbia, where it was around minus 6 degrees centigrade, discovered that in Saskatchewan, where Tanner was, the temperature was, well, more like minus 40 degrees centigrade. People all over this nation, they love where they live. Mm -hmm. I've been shocked. Like, there's some times where I go, you know, I just don't know why people live here because it's a bit mm -hmm. cold or sparse or flat, you know. Mm -hmm. But then the people are absolutely magnificent. The people yes. of Canada are beautiful people. And yes, so, actually. Yeah. And you've touched on something profound because G.K. Chesterton, he called himself a cosmic patriot. And the idea is, if you love where you live purely because it's yours, then you're willing to do just about anything to fix it, right? To make it better. And so it's necessary to actually make changes which are good. You have to love the thing before it actually becomes lovable. Yeah. So the difference between, I would argue, those who live in a town like mine, right? These humble, hardworking farmers and say Justin Trudeau, and I mean this honestly, is that those individuals who live here love where they live. And they love it not because it's warm, because <laughs> it certainly isn't. They don't even love it because it's cold, even though it's cold, right? They love it simply because it's theirs in the same way that you love your child because he or she is yours. Right. But even then you have a prime really minister ugly. in Ottawa. Even if, even if, <laughs> it's exactly right. But then you have a prime minister in Ottawa who doesn't love particularly the West. And so how can we have any assurance that he's going to change it for the better? He doesn't even love Canada. He loves an idea of Canada. Right. He loves this multicultural uh, nation with no borders. Right. That is something entirely different than what it what it actually is and what it's supposed to be. So instead of actually loving the nation, he loves an idea of the nation. He makes an idol. Right. He's this idolatrous man who consistently tries to change Canada into something which it's not. And so none of us have any assurances that all of his changes, all of his build back bettering. Right. Is actually for the better. Because it's not. Because he doesn't fundamentally love the nation purely because it is. So you're, I think that's a very profound thought. Trudeau really doesn't seem to have that. He called us, if you'll remember, a post-national state. 
no sense of core identity and Trudeau's bought into that. Yes, absolutely. You can think of the nation as a massive home, right? And the thing about the home is that it has borders. That's what makes it a home, right? The fact that my house has walls in it that separates it from the outside world is what actually makes it a home. It's what makes it mine, right? The fact of the matter is that property is borders. And so if you completely annihilate borders, if you completely abolish them totally, it's like no one knows, no one owns anything. So what you have with this mass immigration, right? What is it? 500,000 um, new immigrants every year. What you really have is an insinuation in our minds from the government that Canada is no longer ours. Our home is no longer our own. It's like inviting all of these individuals into your own home. You don't even invite them, right? They just, they come into your own home and act like it's theirs, right? It's not, of course. And again, this isn't, a, this isn't a rant against immigration. Of course, you know, you have to have immigration. But mass immigration on this scale is something different entirely. It's not racist, right? It's none of those accusations that the radicals give. What we're merely saying is that by flooding the nation with all of these new citizens who come from all over the world, what you're really insinuating is that borders no longer need to exist, right? The nation of Canada has no identity. So what purpose, what good are borders? There's no need for them because you know, people live here like they do across the oceans and they live here like they do down south and they live here like they do. Well, not to the north because we're north, but, you know, to the east and the west. And so the very idea of borders becomes insignificant, becomes meaningless. And thus uh, the whole idea of capitalism becomes meaningless because there's no property. Nothing is yours. Everything is everyone's. And so no one or so everything is everyone's. And so no one owns anything. The word has been tarnished, but property is so critical because it's a hallmark of freedom, right? And even, okay, so you can actually link together this idea of property in Trudeau's gun ban, right? This newest gun ban, which isn't the last gun ban, right? It's a mass gun ban, but it sure isn't the last one. And the reason I say you can link them together is because private property, our ownership of private property, whether the home, the vehicle, the garden, yourself, right? Is proven by the fact that you can defend it, right? The very act of self-defense and your ability to legally defend yourself from attack, from theft, from, uh, you know, perversion, all of those things is a proof that what you have is actually yours. It's a proof of property. So if I have a man who trespasses onto my land, onto my home or tries to break into my home and I, you know, use force to to ensure he doesn't harm me, that's legitimate, right? No one and no one is upset about that. No one should be upset about that. Our government might have a different idea, but they shouldn't be upset about that, right? It's most fundamentally shown in the in the image of the person. So you're walking downtown late at night. Someone tries to, you know, assault you and you you really beat him up good, right? You bop him good and, and you get away. No one's upset that you've done that because you're protecting what's fundamentally yours, right? yourself. That's a secular perspective, but it's true. So what Trudeau's done then with this gun ban is he's taken away the tools that we as law-abiding individuals use to defend our home, our property, our private property, ourselves. And as such, he's really told all of us that what's yours is no longer yours. You have no real right to defend it. And so you can't even really call it your property. And so terms like stealing and theft just die, right? They get thrown out the window because you can't, um, you know, you. you theft can't exist if there's nothing to steal 
right? If nothing is objectively yours, then when someone takes something, he's not even really taking it. He's just, you're sharing. <laughs> you know, if if you live in this totally socialist world where everything is everyone's and we share everything with everybody, right? It's not like you can say that this man is invading my home. He's not. It's not your home to begin with. And so the man isn't invading. And so I find that gun ban totally reprehensible because it's this, it's this um, uh, excuse just to shovel in more socialism into the nation. I would go so far as to say that theft is really just a form of murder, right? Insofar as you have a man and he needs to buy goods. And so what he does is he gives up, this is the, me as an economist talking, he gives up a portion of his time, a substantial portion of his time, of his life, in order to exchange productive hours for cash, which he then goes out and purchases some good. So what you as a criminal do when you steal something, say uh say you say you steal a book from my bookshelf is you're really stealing a portion of my life because i worked i gave up part of my life to to earn the money needed to buy that book by stealing that book it's as though you're taking away a portion of my life the only difference is the murderer the true murderer right um steals a man's future whereas a, whereas a thief just steals a man's past Okay, so uh, this is this is me as an economist speaking now. Of course, so much of it is inflation. Like you've printed so much money. And I know that the Bank of Canada is going, it's not printing, we didn't print. And it's like, we just use this quantitative easing. This quantitative easing, well, the, it's a big econ, you know, econ word and it's very dry and boring to study. But the difference between say now and 2008 was just how much cash, like physical cash was injected into the immediate economy. Right. Instead of keeping all of that money that they made with the reserves in the banks, what happened this time was all of it went to Canadian citizens. And so they spent it on food. They spent it on bicycles. They spent it on upgrades for their homes. They spent it. We're now seeing the consequences of inflation. But I just gave a talk yesterday and I was discussing how the bureaucrat has completely changed the definition of inflation to mean something which it's not supposed to mean. Inflation should, and for the longest period of time did, mean an increase in the supply of money. And that's it. It meant nothing else. If you increased the supply of money in the economy, you had inflation by definition. It was a tautology. Whether you said inflation or increase in the money supply, it was the same thing. What politicians have done now is they've perverted the word. And they've perverted it to mean or to say um, inflation is a rise in prices. That's not the same thing as an increase in the money supply, right? A rise in prices, a drastic rise in prices are a consequence or is a consequence of inflation, but it's not the same thing, right? So you saw in the Civil War in America, you had an increase in the money supply, a drastic increase in prices. You saw that in the Weimar Republic in Germany, right? An increase in the money supply, a drastic increase in prices. And you saw it in, or you see it in Zimbabwe, right? A massive increase in the money supply leads to a massive increase in prices. Now, the reason that the politicians in Canada and America and so on have transformed the definition of inflation to mean an increase in prices is because it emancipates them from all blame 
Because you can say, well, we had a supply shortage. There was a computer chip shortage. There were supply chain issues or demand has shifted, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to justify the change in prices or a change in prices. And often that's correct to do so, right? Often prices do change as a consequence of all these different factors. But when the prices are changing because the government has printed more money or the Bank of Canada has printed more money, then we should be able to say to the politician, that's your fault. Now, if you completely change a definition, though, you can't do that because that isn't inflation anymore, money printing. It's just money printing. It's different. And so what I'm trying to do or what we're trying to do is take back the language, so to say, right? You see that in school too. The corruption of language leads to the corruption of thought. And you're seeing it everywhere. It's this new speak where nothing means anything. And so no one can think. Yeah, no one can think. And and we're really not allowed to think anymore. Critical thinking has completely gone uh, out the window on so many issues. I've never seen a more backwards time. Well, just don't think about it then. <laughs> you know, if there is no word to represent a given concept that defines some aspect of reality, then there is no way to even think about it or even consider it. When Ayn Rand first compiled her series of essays in her book entitled Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, she made it clear from the outset that her purpose in writing the book was not to promote capitalism, but merely to define it. This book is not a treatise on economics, she wrote. It is a collection of essays on the moral aspects of capitalism. I want to stress that our primary interest is not politics or economics as such, but man's nature and man's relationship to existence, and that we advocate capitalism because it is the only system geared to the life of a rational being. Accurate and valid definitions are the key to discovering both reality and the truth. When the definitions upon which your mind depends to function are constantly changed, and if you accept those changing concepts, it can be said that you will have lost your mind. Or in other words, you will have become a left-winger. <laughs> Here's the thing. This, the system of the West is failing. Capitalism as a system works, but the way in which capitalism has been abused the printing of money, the quantitative easing, the fraud of, of fiat money and all the rest of it have conspired or have come together to ensure that the system of the West must fall. I'm always reminded of that the sequence with Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier where he, he hit, Muhammad Ali has hit him and he's going down and he could, all, he could hit him again but he doesn't need to. He just watches him, he just watches him fall. You know, it's that, that's where we are in the West. We have been KO'd and we're in mid-fall. We just haven't hit the canvas yet. So, so people don't realise. So the system is failing, and it means that, I mean, for, I don't know, for decades now, one young generation of young intellectuals after another has proposed socialism or communism. You know, socialism is communism's idiot cousin. And, and it's, it, it, tricks, it, tricks, it tricks every succeeding generation into, into thinking that, you know, that Marx... And the Communist Manifesto and Das Kapital and Marxist thought and Engels, that they have the answers. One one generation after another stumbles into that into that swamp. Um, but I think what's what's really what 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 fascinates me is the way in which, on the one hand, communism is still fashionable, communism is still acceptable in polite society, or talk of communism is still 
has some intellectual clout to it. And it's legitimate to be looking for an alternative to the system we've got because the system that we've got is about to fall over. But what people aren't noticing, it's as though where the real power is, the, the, the elite, the cabal, whatever you want to call the, the people who are brokering the real power, are allowing thoughts of communism to float around. Because what has actually happened in the background is that under cover of neo-communism, while people are distracted by that, uh, something else entirely has already happened. The, re the replacement for the broken system is already there, and we, the most of us, are not going to like it. And it's, it's coming from many sources, but it's probably worth talking about the World Economic Forum, the WEF and Klaus Schwab, um, because he, for, for decades now, he has been talking about, he's been banging the drum about stakeholder capitalism. I think he's been banging on about it for about 40 or 50 years, one way or another. Um, and it's a it's a concept, and it's it, it 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 sounds it sounds kind of fluffy and and cosy in a way, because it it suggests that global capitalism can be transformed, um, so that corporations uh, become stakeholders in society, so that. Corporations or the representatives, the board members, the board, the chairman of corporations, become stakeholders. Um, and it, but it's only when you look into it that you realise that what is being what has been done, it's not proposed, it has happened, is that corporations and and by association transnational uh, global asset management organisations are being given or have been given more and more power over society. And what we've always been invited to think of as democratic institutions have been eroded to the point where they're hollow. Anyone, anyone thinking that we have a democratic system at the moment, I think, I think, if my opinion is worth anything, I think is deluded. And if you watch what the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, you know, his book, The Great Reset, and if you go to the website and you look at the documents that are there, they're, there. they're not hiding in plain sight. They're just there. It's all there. And it, it quite blatantly states that the government voice, the government voice, that's to say a nation state's government voice, would be one among many without always being the final arbiter. Okay, now let that sink in. Let that sink in. And the, and the WEF and Klaus Schwab and stakeholder capitalism is quite, is quite upfront about this. There's nothing hidden about it in terms of an agenda. So forget your governments now. Forget your national governments. They are they are they have been sidelined. They are just counted out. They're kind of patted on the head and told their stakeholders as well. But the kind of people that are drawn into government at the moment: your Rishi Sunaks, your Jeremy Hunts, your Emmanuel Macron, your uh, Justin Trudeau's, your Jacinda Ardern. All of these people. Be in no doubt that none of these people gives a tinker's cuss about the concept of d democracy, uh, democratically elected people. It's absolutely. Uh, an, an overthrow. The reset, it, it, to all intents and purposes, has already happened. You know, long story short, something very clever is happening in the year of the 100th anniversary of communism. You know, that, that 
ideology that has led to nothing but mountains of dead bodies. Still in all, we're being invited to watch another generation of younger people, younger generation, flirting with communism and socialism with the idea that, that, that we will all live together once again in some kind of utopia. And under the cover of that, the World Economic Forum and all of the satellites that orbit it, all of the other organisations that are in bed with it, have pulled off a brilliant sleight of hand. It's like, again, it's the usual suspects. You know, the greatest trick stakeholder capitalism ever pulled was persuading the world it didn't exist. We're not watching them. Our eye is not on the ball. And the truth of the matter is, that great reset that we've heard so much about has already happened. Because the reality, as I see it, is that we're going to live in a future that is not about democracy. It's not about communism, as the young intellectuals like to have wet dreams about. Some kind of utopia. It's not going to be that at all. There may be some kind of neo-communism, but in reality it's Klaus Schwab's stakeholder capitalism, in which the world and 99.999% of the people who live in it, we are governed by corporations whose only interest is in control of the money, control of the food, control of the technology, control of the vaccines, which those elements added together will mean total control. And that is happening on our watch while we were looking the other way. Hitler was the worst person in the history of the world, right? Nazis were the worst group in the history of the world, right? Well, let's do a little perspective here. Let's, let's measure this a little bit. Mao Zedong killed more people than Adolf Hitler did. And the Chinese communists still run the most oppressive regime on earth with forced labor camps and modern day concentration camps with persecution of religious groups. What about them? You don't really talk about them, do you? No, they get protected in modern day media. What about Pol Pot? What about Stalin? What about Lenin? What about Hitler? What do all of these men have in common? They all killed millions of people in the 20th century and they were all leftists. Yeah. So once again, all you liberal leftists out there that love virtue signaling, pretending you're fighting Hitler every day. Do you really know what Nazi stands for? Do you really know the political platform that launched Adolf Hitler? Adolf Hitler launched his political platform from the Socialists Workers Party. What does that sound like to you? Do you know what Nazi stands for? National Socialist. National Socialist. Socialist. Left wing ideology. So you can play your games of saying it's right wing and right wing extremists, but it's not. Socialism is a left wing belief. Hitler was a left winger. Stalin, Lenin, Pol Pot, Mao, they were all communists. They were all left-wing. And so all we're desperately trying to do here is learn from our history that left-wing ideology and communism killed hundreds of millions of people in the 20th century, and we're here in the 21st century, and you want to do it to us again. You want to take the bloodshed 
of communism and left-wing ideology from the 20th century that we defeated and created the most prosperous, wealthy nation on the planet. And you wanna bring us back into the age of left-wing communism and socialism that results in bloodshed. And all we're trying to do is stop that from happening. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And of course, Karl Marx invariably comes into play when dealing with social and political disasters. Nor could it be otherwise. Marx's entire ideology was an epistemological disaster, employing words that have no objective meanings, which is why it's not really possible for any intelligent people to read Marx without discarding it as the rantings of a total madman. To understand how Marx so completely misrepresented capitalism with his whole absurd alienation from nature BS, just check out our show with Salim Mansour of two weeks ago. Until that broadcast, I never really understood Marx's twisted thinking on this issue, although I've long understood that Marx was a true fool who had no capacity to understand anything. And for that, I have Isabel Patterson to thank, whose description of Marx, which I have cited often, can be found in her book, The God of the Machine, and from which I shall quickly share the following. Quote, Marx was a fool with a large vocabulary of long words. Misuse of language is the means by which the Marxist cult of communism has done the most serious injury to intelligence. Marx's theory of class war is utter nonsense by its own definition. It has no reference to either class or war if it relates to capital and labor. It is physically impossible for labor and capital to engage in war on each other. Capital is property. Labor is men. Marxist terminology reduces verbal expression to literal nonsense on the basis of fact and usage. This is not obvious gibberish, but arrangements of words according to the rules of grammar, in which each word, taken separately, has a customary meaning, but which in a given sentence mean nothing at all. For example, let it be said that an isosceles triangle is green. The several words are in common use, and as parts of speech, they are placed in proper order, but the whole statement is absurd. That is bad enough, but it would be rather worse if one spoke of the roundness of a triangle. The phrase, dictatorship of the proletariat, is like the roundness of a triangle, a contradiction in terms. It has no meaning. This is specifically the language of fools. For the deficiency which is indicated by the word fool is the incapacity to understand categories and the relation of things and qualities, end quote. Wow, so what does that say about all Marxists and denizens of the left? Is it any wonder that they're all incapable of discussion, debate, or persuasion? And as always for such mentalities, when persuasion invariably fails, just use force and force is the only tool of persuasion that the left is capable of wielding. But every time socialism, or any of its variants like communism or fascism, are revealed to be the evil that they truly are, all that is necessary to sell it is an epistemological trick. Just change a definition of the concept. For example, call fascism stakeholder capitalism. This is the trick of what I call adject 
activity where placing an adjective in front of a word turns the meaning of that adjective to the word not. For example, stakeholder capitalism, not capitalism. The new normal, not normal. The alt-right, not right. And you can just keep going. Come to think of it, in a way, the term stakeholder capitalism could even be considered a redundancy, since capitalism operates on the principles of private property ownership. Every individual is already a stakeholder. But Marxist fool Klaus Schwab describes stakeholder capitalism as a system where we'll all own nothing and be happy. How much more not-capitalism can you possibly get? Round triangles, anyone? Coming up next is part of a very entertaining and thought-provoking speech delivered by Michael Knowles to a group of students which was posted online November 29th. The title of his presentation was Science is Fake, with a bit of tongue-in-cheek at play there, but he made a very compelling case about how science has become the justification for sacrificing everyone's freedom to tyranny. I was reminded of my own recent warnings on the show to never follow the science, and more recently, of course, of Professor Salim Mansour's comment on our December 1st show that what we are dealing with is Marxism, which pretends to be rational science. In other words, whenever you hear politicians tell you to follow the science, what they're really talking about is their political non-science, or nonsense for short, of Marxism. The libs call me all sorts of names. They do me, me, lovable me. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? They, all the usual ones. They call me racist, sexist, phobic. But the charge they hurl at me most often these days, anti-science. They do. They do. It doesn't matter what I'm talking about. Could be talking about the coronavirus, gender, global warming, whatever, the most frequent accusation these days, tantamount to a charge of blasphemy, is that I am anti-science. And to that accusation, I say, guilty as charged. <laughs> I know that many conservatives fear being called anti-science because it makes them feel foolish and ignorant. That's why they try to ground all of their arguments in scientific jargon. You know, when, when the liberals call us anti-science for denying their alleged breakthroughs in, in the science of sex and gender, what do the conservatives do? We hurl it right back at them. We accuse them of being anti-science for denying the scientific reality of sex. We refer to biological males, biological females, as if biology were the only thing that mattered in the whole world. When the libs accuse us of being anti-science for objecting to their taking away all of our rights and freedoms and way of life for two years, what do we do? Why, we throw that insult right back at them. We say, no, you're anti-science. And then we recite a litany of scientific arguments for why hankies on our face would not prevent a global pandemic. As if there were no other reason other than science not to give all of our political power away to a diminutive technocrat in a lab coat. When the liberals call us anti-science for doubting that the world will end in 10 years, I think probably more like eight or nine years now, I forget when AOC made the uh, <laughs> prophecy. When they, when, they, when they call us anti-science for doubting that, 
if we don't destroy our economy and radically alter the way that we eat, work, get around, heat our homes, do pretty much everything else that we do, what do we say? We say, nah, nah, you're anti-science. And then we cite our own statistics about sea levels and storms and temperatures and whatever, as though science were the ultimate, the only authority when it comes to ascertaining the truth. I'm sick of it. I don't care if the liberals call me foolish or ignorant or a knuckle-dragging troglodyte. <laughs> I don't. I'm not going to play their game. I am not going to worship their false god. I am not going to take their epistemological bait. It may be true, okay, that they call us anti-science. Fine, science is totally fake. There, I said it. <laughs> I don't care. Conservatives say we're not anti-science. Maybe that's true, but we damn well should be, as far as I'm concerned. We should, at the very least, be much more skeptical of the pretenses of science than we are right now. For starters, I don't know if you all are history buffs in this room, but as a purely historical matter, science has been wrong about pretty much everything at some point for all of history. I'm not just talking about the past couple of years. I'm not just talking about the World Health Organization and the CDC and the NIH and, and our old pal, Dr. Fauci, all of whom made mistakes and told outright lies about uh, COVID, its origin, the masks, the social distancing, the vaccines, the lockdowns, and most everything else. And though the scientists are frequently wrong, they are almost never in doubt, which is why today scientists, and really not even so much the scientists as the broader disciples of science, insist that we accept their current consensus on any matter that they deem important, any topic, global warming, the origin of life, human sexuality, you name it, we must believe precisely the view that just so happens to be fashionable in the year of our Lord 2022, or else we are ignorant, idiot, science deniers. The present conception of the cosmos is one in which Earth and man exist as infinitesimally small blips in some far-flung part of cold, dead space. But does that really represent the truth of man's position? In a physical sense, perhaps, man is not the center of the universe. But in a deeper sense, man is, in fact, the center of the universe. Man is where the physical and the metaphysical realms meet. That is not just some flight of fancy. It is not even solely the understanding of Christians or some other religious group. It is, in fact, uh, just a simple fact accepted by all people, without which none of us could do any of the things that we do every day. We all know and behave as though, whether we want to admit it or not, man is both body and rational soul, flesh and intellect. So, between the two conceptions of the universe, the ancient view of man at the center of the cosmos and the modern scientific view of man as an inconsequential blip in some far-flung random region of emptiness, which is the more accurate representation of reality? Which tells us more about the way things really are? 
This is the point in the discussion when one of my favorite words usually crops up, one of the most paradoxical words in the English language, literally. <laughs> People will be tempted to say, well, Michael, it is literally true. That is, they mean it might be figuratively true that man is the center of the universe, but it is literally true that the Earth revolves around the Sun in the Milky Way galaxy, in the Virgo supercluster, in the Laniakea supercluster, in the Pisces Cetus supercluster complex, which is located right in the middle of God only knows where. But is that literally true? What does literally even mean? People tend to think of literal as meaning the opposite of metaphorical or symbolic. But that literally cannot be true because literal refers to letters which are symbols. I am not being cute or obtuse here. Well, I'm always being cute. I'm always trying to be cute. But I'm not, I am not being obtuse. This is not just some trick of language or some glib observation. The fact that even literal has a symbolic meaning tells us something important about the nature of reality. This is not a novel use of the word. F. Scott Fitzgerald, James Joyce, Mark Twain, teenage girls since time immemorial have all used literally to mean figuratively. It is not an error. It's a crucial insight. It is the insight that nothing is without meaning. Modern medical science has led to many fine things. Longer life, better nutrition, better dentistry, I don't know. It has also etched into our minds a new representation of man as purely physical, at the very least fundamentally physical, a, a machine to be poked and prodded and tuned up. We reflect this in our language. We, we no longer get excited. We just feel a rush of adrenaline. We no longer feel happy. We get a hit of dopamine. We no longer feel sad or blue or melancholic. Now we have a, a chemical imbalance, which is a scientific representation, by the way, that has just recently completely fallen apart, even as a representation. But that's how we talk. But our modern conception of reality as fundamentally physical is not the result of some nefarious scientist. It is a feature, not a bug, of the whole scientific revolution, which necessarily considers the world only as physical. The philosopher Owen Barfield predicted all of this half a century ago in his book, Saving the Appearances. Barfield saw that the scientific worldview left unchecked would eventually eliminate all meaning and all coherence from the cosmos. He saw that it would lose its grip on any principle of unity pervading nature as a whole and the knowledge of nature, that it would give rise to the hypothesis of chance, randomness creeping from the theory of evolution into the theory of the physical foundation of the Earth itself, and still worse, cause an increasing fragmentation of science. Quote, pigeonholed knowledge by individuals of more and more about less and less, which, if persisted indefinitely, can only lead mankind to a sort of idiocy in which the breakdown of meaning will mean that there will be no means of communication between one intelligence and another. Does that sound familiar? Sounds to me like Owen Barfield got in a time machine and, and described the year 2022, where the sciences have become absurd and words no longer seem to have any meaning. We can no longer even agree on the meaning of the word woman.
a Supreme Court justice, a woman, <laughs> in her Senate confirmation hearings, was not able to define woman. Why could she not define it? Well, because she said she's not a biologist. This woman is a double Harvard grad. <laughs> this woman is a federal judge put up for the highest court in the land. But she lacked scientific credentials, and therefore she could not describe even her own identity. By the way, I sympathize with her. I really do. We conservatives, we all made fun of Justice Jackson, but frankly, our answer to that question has not been all that much better than hers. Our answer to that question, what is a woman, has more or less been genitals and chromosomes. A woman is a person with a womb and two X chromosomes. That's what we've said. Justice Jackson's answer, or non-answer, I guess, is that woman means more than just a womb and two X chromosomes. In a way, she was closer to the truth than we conservatives have been. Justice Jackson, like all the libs, is quite mistaken if she believes that some hulking man in a miniskirt can actually be a woman. But she is quite right to acknowledge that women are more than their chromosomes. Ironically, when conservatives define women in that purely physical way, we accept the very soul-denying scientism that the libs have peddled to get us into this mess of meaninglessness in the first place. When I was a kid, I was taught that girls are made of sugar and spice and everything nice. Today I am told that women are made of X chromosomes, whatever that is. Which representation is closer to the truth? Of course, it's not even close. Of course, sugar and spice and everything nice, of course. Of course, that conveys much more clearly the reality of what a woman is than X chromosomes does. Man is the center of the universe conveys much more clearly the reality of our position than does a rock around a ball of gas in the Pisces Cetus super galaxy cluster. The image and likeness of God conveys much more precisely the reality of who we are than does carbon and oxygen and 80% water. It is not the case, as many people mistakenly believe today, that the scientific view of things is objectively true, while the philosophical and religious views are mere interesting representations. They're all representations. All of it. They're all just models. They're all just pictures. Whatever image you have in your mind right now of what the universe looks like is only that. It is only an image. Whatever we picture in our heads is necessarily a representation, scientific, religious, anything in between. That's not a bad thing. Representations are necessary for making sense of the world. Boy, if ever anyone gave meaning to the phrase, blinded by science, Michael Knowles just did a fine job of that. In fact, rather than being enlightened by science, we have been constantly blinded by it. I recall citing Scottish philosopher John McMurray's warnings that he made back in the 1930s that science can be as subject to superstition as can religion or any other philosophy or economic theory. 
In fact, I might be compelled to suggest that what Knowles is criticizing is the religion of science, not the process of scientific inquiry. And make no mistake, I have repeatedly listened to religious speakers and commentators who have been rightfully critical of science being reduced to a religion, and therein lies a whole other epistemological bag of worms to unravel that I'm not going anywhere near today. Now, I do have one significant clarification to make to what we just heard. What Michael Knowles was referring to as scientists were, of course, not real scientists at all. He was referring to the state-run medical monopoly, politicians pretending to be scientific, like Marxists do, to paraphrase Professor Mansour. Bill Gates and Klaus Schwab sure ain't scientists. Anyone who's capable of even saying that the science is settled is not and cannot be a scientist, as our guest last week, Dr. Braden, demonstrated very clearly. But to argue that science is fake and that science has been wrong all throughout history is to attribute various conclusions, assumptions, and discoveries arrived at throughout the years along the process of scientific inquiry itself rather than various trial and errors made along the way. And to say that the science is never settled is not the same as saying that we can never depend upon the knowledge that we do have and do know to be so. That is, in fact, what the science of epistemology is all about, determining the validity of knowledge. I say this to avoid the danger of taking the meanings of the words Knowles used to make his point literally, if I may borrow a representation, but I take his greater point to heart, namely that all words and concepts are representations of some reality or narrative. Nevertheless, in correctly concluding that representations are necessary for making sense of the world, he's still really referring to concepts themselves, which, of course, no one ever really considered to be the same as the things that those concepts represented. So why make the distinction in the first place? I think it's this. It is to make a distinction between the process of science itself and the role of science in human life. Science exists to serve man, not the other way round. Quote, Our knowledge of reality as being something physical is a feature, not a bug, of the whole scientific revolution, which necessarily considers the world only as physical, end quote, says Knowles. So what is it about science that necessarily considers the world only as physical? Well, the reason for that necessity is that only physical entities are capable of being observed and measured. And you know what? The enemy knows that too. Remember what Salim Mansour warned us of on our show two weeks back. In the playing out of the anti-industrial revolution, what we are dealing with is Marxism, which pretends to be rational science. And here comes the scary part, because we're not talking about scientists, are we? We're talking about politicians, and not just politicians but Marxists pretending to operate on rational science. And wouldn't you know it, they no longer just measure physical entities in nature, but now they're measuring happiness itself. We devoted an entire show to that development back on July 11th, 2019, and we called it a measure of happiness. And of course, once governments claim to be able to measure your happiness, then they can take credit for whatever measure of happiness you may report to them. The irony, of course, is that happiness has always been associated with freedom, not with the kinds of governments that go around measuring it. <laughs> Yikes. 
By the way, I totally agreed with Knowles when he said that describing girls as being made of sugar and spice and everything nice was far more meaningful to the human experience than any scientific or rational measurement could ever be. And allow me to take his contention that, in a deeper sense, man is the center of the universe and apply my own interpretation of the universe to that statement. I recall many years ago on this show saying exactly that. But meaning it in a literal sense, again to borrow a representation, as I described it on a recent broadcast, the universe is the supreme being, representing all that which exists and is in direct defiance of any concepts of non-existence in the metaphysical sense. It's axiomatic. Existence exists. It has no boundaries, no beginning, no end. It cannot be considered to be some kind of container in which all of the galaxies, stars, and planets are placed. Existence, essentially, is what we are calling the universe. So as I recall describing it, every person on this planet is in the center of the universe, even though we're not in the same location. If we could be instantly transported to some galaxy trillions of light years away, we would still be in the center of the universe. Why? How is it that I can possibly justify saying that we're in the center of a universe that I just described as having no center? Because in a boundless universe, no matter where you might be, the distance traveled in any chosen direction from your location is necessarily equal to any other. And that's about as centered as you can be. Or to put it another way, in a boundless universe, you would never find yourself at anything that could be described as the edge of it or the limit of a universe, which, which would therefore compromise any concept of being in its center. Now, I've elaborated on this on a few past broadcasts, but for now, that's my representation of the universe. But let us never forget that despite the symbolic, representative nature of words, concepts, and language, whatever is being validly represented or conceptualized is real and does exist. But when words are used as weapons, as anti-concepts, as misrepresentations and lies, then it's only the people who use false concepts, not the concepts themselves, that exist. And they are the real danger that confronts us. So why, for the theme of our show today, did I choose to use the representative term Word War 3? and not, say, two or one, or just word war spree, as we titled an earlier broadcast in February. Because I have every reason to believe that losing this word war may well lead to a literal, pardon again the, the representation, world war, represented by the same number. And win or lose, it's a war that never ends, and for the right, one that requires a well-armed epistemological army, one able to destroy the nihilistic and hollow representations continually foisted upon us by the left. We began today's show on a biblical note with the observation that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And now, in the end, there is the Word, and the Word is with Bob. And Bob says... Be sure to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright.
George Wallace isn't really opposed to personal liberty and individual freedom. He just doesn't want them to fall into the wrong hands. 